Now, take your pew Bibles, unless you have one of your own and are very familiar with it, because we're going to be doing a lot of looking at First and Second Peter. Not two Peters, but the first letter of Peter and the second letter of Peter. Or as they say in Great Britain, one Peter and two Peter. Page 1204, we're reading First Peter chapter 2 and verses 13 to 17. And then second Peter. But please keep your Bibles open because we are going to look at a lot of text. You'll have, them, you'll have the text itself in front of you, but... Uh, Anyway, so this is page 1204 and following. 1 Peter chapter 2 and beginning at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And then Second Peter chapter 3, the very, very last of Peter's letters written under the inspiration of God. Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll read the whole chapter. This would be uh, page 1208 and following. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the and the uh, commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water, and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Notice that the Apostle Peter puts Paul's writings on par here with the, with the Old Testament scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. And the grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Okay, we should all have a handout entitled, Putting Politics in Perspective, Part 1. <clears throat> and you will need your <clears throat> Bibles open to First and Second Peter. And if you're using <clears throat> the Pew Bibles, pages 1,203 to 1,209, I will use the, the verses, thank you. I will use the verses uh, rather than the page numbers when we come to the text, but you'll, you'll figure it out. I want to thank you for praying, as I've asked you to do for this uh, message. As we look forward to the, the 4th of July and our national birthday, uh, thank you for praying for me and, and dealing with the topic. The title became, as you see, Putting Politics in Perspective. And I say that in particular reason. Um, your pastor was, in the 1960s, during my house, high school years, 1966 to 1970, I, uh, I went from one end of the political spectrum to the other, it went from uh, little Marxist cell groups and discussions to Young Americans for Freedom, all in a space of, of four years. And the default for me in my non-Christian life was debate. The default for me was politics. And believe it or not, in, the, in my school yearbook, when I was asked what I wanted to be, I'm embarrassed to say this now, but I said, I want to be President of the United States. Oh, God, thank you that you delivered me from that fate. Uh, but, uh, but that was how politically oriented I was. And throughout my Christian life, I confess that one of my big struggles as I deal with issues of the kingdom of God and, and the state 
um, is that that love of, of politics and the fascination with it is still with me. And many, too many times, I have really lapsed into sinful conduct and speech regarding those in authority and have asked the Lord to forgive me and have asked you to forgive me. So this has afforded me the opportunity to wrestle through some of these issues, and I hope it'll help you as well, because I know you well enough to know that you're all struggling with the same kinds of issues and putting politics in perspective. So you've got your hand out. I don't usually do this, but I think that uh, for the sake of, of edification, I think this is probably the most helpful way to do this. And this would be the last message where I would ever want anything to be misunderstood. So I've chosen my words carefully and hope that they'll be of use to you. And they're here for you so that you can refer to them as I hope that you will. Putting politics in perspective, and this will just be the first of two proposed two parts. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the challenge. And it is at this very point that I believe professed Christians in the United States err on one side or the other. One side would be to say, well, the New Testament doesn't deal with political issues, and therefore we shouldn't deal with them at all. That's one side. And there are political issues you shouldn't deal with, but there's other ones that we should. The other view is to simply use phrases like Christian nationalism, whatever that means, or a Christian foundation, whatever that means, or a Christian nation, whatever that means, and then under those umbrellas discuss things that really need not a machete but a scalpel. And by God's grace, I hope that we can avoid both of those errors and do it in this way. First century Rome, in which the New Testament was written, was not the 21st century United States of America. And if you don't have that as your very first conviction, then you will go awry in all of your thinking about politics. First century Rome is not the 21st century of the United States of America. How so? First century Rome had an emperor. It was an empire. Our nation is not an empire. It is a constitutional republic, and it's very significant for how you look at politics. A constitutional republic. A republic is not a democracy. Democracy is majority rule. Majority rule means if you're the minority, you're in big trouble. Our founding fathers saw democracy, and they hated it. And our nation is not a democracy. And it's not only just a republic, which is a representative government. It is intentionally a republic under a constitution. And those who are elected to office submit themselves, or resolve to submit themselves, or vow to submit themselves to the constitution when they say that they will preserve, protect, and defend the constitution of the United States. That point over against our nation having an emperor is pivotal for you to understand. Now, this is why this is important. When you look at, for example, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, 
be subject for the Lord's sake to the emperor as supreme. We don't have an emperor who is supreme. If you have a supreme in the United States under Christ, it's the Constitution of the United States of America. And brothers and sisters, we have a tripartite government, executive, legislative, and judicial, in order to preserve that. The legislature is to make laws, not the president. The president is to carry out the laws. The Supreme Court is to make the judgment as to whether the laws are in accord with the Constitution. And when our president says that the Supreme Court erred in a decision that it made the other day, excuse me, President Biden is not the emperor. It is the Supreme Court of the United States. May it err? Yes. And if it errs, it can be corrected. The President of the United States is not the Supreme Court of the United States. So you've got to keep that in mind as we look at this. It will help in so many ways in putting politics in perspective. Now here's the approach we're going to use. When, when you look at the scriptures, there's, there's a, it's what's called a, a zitzim leben, a situation in life. All, all the books of the Bible are written with certain things in view, what God is doing with the people of God, what the political situation is all about, what the, what the situation is like with other nations, and so on. And, and so you have to look at books of the Bible and, and ask, what, what, what are they dealing with? The two letters of the Apostle Peter are the books in particular we need to look at. Why? Well, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be primarily in, in 2 Peter today, but look at 1 Peter, and that's going to be page 1203. Notice to whom Peter is writing under the inspiration of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. What does that mean? These are Christians who had been dispersed from Jerusalem into basically Gentile areas. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, which would be roughly modern Turkey and north of that, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is writing and administering grace to Christians in situations just like ours. They are surrounded by unbelievers, and they're not in a majority. They're in a minority among them. And so we're going to be taking strands of teaching from First and Second Peter over the next couple of weeks to, again, put our politics in perspective. And never forget, this is so important as we go through all of it, the focus of the New Testament is not on political leaders and politics, but on Christ and the church. Don't ever, ever miss that. Why? Because Christ, brothers and sisters, is given as head over all things, including the emperor, including the president, including 
Supreme Court decisions. Christ is given as head over all things for the sake of his church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills, fills all in all. So we've said over and over again, history, politics, is a scaffolding in which the Lord is building his church. Don't make the scaffolding primary. It's the church himself. And that is your first step to put politics in perspective. Don't put politics first. Okay, that's apart from these four points here, that's your very that's kind of foundational for all of this. Your first step to put politics in perspective. Don't put politics first. Why is this so important? When I began in Franklin Square as a pastor in, in 1981, Jerry, you'll remember this. One of the things that, that I began doing that I think was not common uh, for various reasons under the previous pastor was visiting in homes. And that's a conviction that I have as a pastor. The Lord Jesus ministered in homes. He was with people. And the whole idea of the minister who is distant from the people and writes his books or whatever is very foreign to the New Testament. And it was foreign to the people in Franklin Square. And so I'd visit, say, well, I'd like to come over and visit you. And, of course, immediately, what does the pastor want to come over and visit about? And I wanted to get to know them and chat with them and talk with them about the things of the Lord. And uh, so you got over that hurdle, first of all. And what I found invariably, and I'm not saying this critically because I descended into the same thing, conversations would descend more to the political than to the things of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, people weren't used to those visits, I get that. But it was a statement that our, our default is to look more for political things. And there's a reason for that in our culture. That'll be next week. But, but that's why, folks, keep in mind, first... First basic thing for putting politics in perspective, don't make politics the first thing. And these quotations, rarely would I quote Frederick, Frederick Nietzsche, who was no friend of Christianity, <clears throat> but if the Apostle Paul could quote a, a pagan poet about creation, I can quote Frederick Nietzsche about, about power. Be careful, he says, lest in fighting the dragon, you become the dragon. And C.S. Lewis, almost all crimes of Christian history have come about when religion is confused with politics. Politics, which always runs by the rules of ungrace. That's an interesting phrase. Politics, which always runs by the rules of ungrace, allures us to tra trade away grace for power. A temptation the church has often been unable to resist. Those are sobering things. Let's keep them in mind as, as we go through putting politics in perspective. Okay, here we go. Four points. Have your Bibles open. We're going to look at not all the texts, but some of them. Number one, <clears throat> it would be unnatural, unspiritual, and by that I mean not of the Holy Spirit, and dangerous not to regard sinful attitudes and conduct as what God says they are. It would be unnatural, unspiritual, and dangerous not to regard sinful attitudes and conduct as what God says they are. Second Peter chapter 1, and you're going to have to note whether you're in second or first, but this is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 
and verse 4. The apostle speaks of those things of grace by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, you possess the Holy Spirit. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I cannot overstate to you the importance of that word corruption. The Greek word phoros, for those of you who are interested in that, as I know Brian is, not only means destruction, but it means dissolution brought about gradually by decay. Paul was describing Rome, or Peter was describing Rome of the first century, that was being destroyed and dissolved, gradually being brought down by intense decay. And as I've mentioned before, not a few of the sinful attitudes and conducts that we see in our day were common in the first century. And they are corrupting. I really want this to sink in. Morality is not neutral. Immorality is not neutral. It will either refine and improve or it will decay and destroy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, again, in 2 Peter rather, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, powerful, powerful words. For if God, this is the next chapter in 2 Peter, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, folks, this was a flood that destroyed the world because every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, and it grieved God that he even made man. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to distinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And let me just stop there. Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because the people were inhospitable. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of its sexual perversion. Period. So, the scriptures speak quite boldly of this. Now, if you look at verses 7 and 8... Now, thank God for this encouragement. If he rescued righteous Lot, notice the language. Greatly distressed. The word means oppressed. The word means severely tormented. Greatly distressed by the, not by the lack of hospitality, but by the sexual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, He was tormenting his righteous soul 
over their lawless deeds that he saw and that he heard. Brothers and sisters, it would be unnatural, unspiritual, and dangerous not to be like Lot. And you know that in your inmost being. That's why it's unnatural. It's against nature in these areas. And here's why you need to be careful. Now for this, flip to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. And I'll try not to have you flip too much. But these I want you to see. This is so important. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Sojourner, you're heading for heaven. Exile, you're away from your home, heaven. To abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's not just sexual passions. It can be angry passions. But it's nevertheless passions of the flesh. Which wage war against your soul. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you treat what is a sinful attitude and conduct as somehow okay, you're not only disregarding God, you're endangering yourself? Notice again the language. The apostle says in here, I beg you, I urge you, I beg you, Abstain from the passions of the flesh which are at peace with your soul, which you should be okay with. They wage war against your... You wage war and you don't fight against it. You're dead. And then one other text in First Peter... Rather, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17, very end, where he adds, concludes his warning. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away. The language is of a planet that goes out of orbit. That you are not carried away with the error. Not something you're to be okay with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And I want to suggest to you that probably the majority of professing evangelical Christians in the United States have lost their stability because they don't take these things seriously. Now, no doubt, and and there is no doubt, brothers and sisters, that perverted sexual practices are, they're not exclusive, but they are dominant in these texts. There's no doubt about that. Yes, gluttony is a sin. Yes, pride is a sin. We're taking none of that away. But you can't get away from the fact, especially when you read Romans 1 and verse 24 and following, God gives people up to idolatry. And that idolatry of self works itself out First of all, in perverted homosexual sexual relationships. Why is that? As I said, sexual intimacy is the most holy place of human relationships. It is sacred. Because the Apostle Paul says, I'm speaking now in marriage 
and the oneness in marriage that is consummated in sexual intimacy. I'm speaking of Christ and the church. That's the most holy place. And when there is the degradation of that holy place, there are the same kinds of consequences there were for the degradation of the most holy place in the Old Testament. Now, these things, and, and the other thing I'd only add here, because we're dealing with our own constitution, these things that sinful attitudes and conduct that God calls such, why, as an American citizen in particular, should you be opposed to these things? They don't promote the general welfare. The preamble to the Constitution of the United States includes the statement that our responsibility in our Constitution, our governing document, is to promote the general welfare. The pride flag doesn't. It does not at all. It's a degradation. Now, brothers and sisters, and this is why, again, I don't want to spend too much time on this, although it warrants being considered. Do you realize that up to about 20 years ago, I believe all states in the Union had laws against sodomy. They had laws against homosexual practice. What's happened in 20 years? Now, that, not to answer the question, what should laws be? That's a whole other thing. But you see the shift that's come. And the reason for those laws is because rightly it was understood you promote perversion and you will destroy a country fast. Our African friends, in most cases, have gotten that far better than we have. All right. Now, let me add this at the end of number one. Beware, brothers and sisters, of self-righteousness. We're always battling that when we come to this and you point your finger at something else. Think about yourself. The scriptures condemn covetousness. I'm very thankful for America. America is built on covetousness. The whole marketing world is to get you convinced that you need to buy things you never knew you needed and to live for that. I'm sorry, the Bible calls covetousness idolatry. And whether it's idolatry of the body in sexual matters or whether it's the idolatry of a house or a car or whatever, okay, it's the same thing. We mentioned prior to that gluttony, pride, living for wealth, when, when we say these things, as I say in number one, I say it again, it would be unnatural, unspiritual, and dangerous not to regard sinful attitudes and conduct as what God says they are. Your response is rivers of water flow down from my eyes because they don't keep your law. How often have you cried over the things that you've screamed at? Okay, number two. Now, but is referring to number one, okay? It would be unnatural and spiritual and dangerous not to regard sinful attitudes and conduct as what God says they are. But 
God also regards these sinful attitudes and conduct in this way and treats them as such. God's God's not vacant when it comes to these things. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. Continuing the section about Lot and Sodom. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and, interestingly, despise authority. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that's not just future. That's right now. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Colossians, speaks of a catalog of vices and sins. And he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God comes. It's meted out in history, above all, by doing what God's done to our culture, by giving it up. And in many cases, by exterminating it. I remember when HIV became an issue and we wrestled with health procedures and so on, and AIDS became the very big topic of conversation. And one of our elders, a very learned elder, who was brokenhearted over this as we were, nevertheless said, do you realize the number of cultures that have become extinct because of sexually transmitted disease? And so, brothers and sisters, God also regards these sinful attitudes and conduct in this way and treats them as such. And that should break our hearts and not make us gloat. When you see the things that utterly turn you off, and again, righteous Lot's righteous soul is vexed, I get that. But do you also say, but for the grace of God, there go I? The other thing that I have found helpful, God doesn't need my wrath to help him with his. The wrath of man, James says, does not work the righteousness of God. Early on in my ministry, and I say this to my utter, utter shame, I found in dealing with so many divergences from the scriptures in reformed church life that I became utterly angry. Thank God for elders who spoke to me lovingly but firmly. And this was the text that lanced me. The wrath of God doesn't work the righteousness. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. God doesn't need my wrath to help him with his. And before that, he says, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Think of people, folks, who are in a burning house. You don't scream at them in hatred. You pity them and try to rescue them. And if you get them singed by the fire or having lost loved ones in that fire, as our culture is doing in so many ways, 
You don't yell at them. You listen to them and try to comfort them and help them. And so it's the same thing here. And remember another thing under all of this, God regarding these sinful attitudes and conduct in the way we, in the right way, and treating them as such. Christ has authority over all this, folks. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22, Christ has gone into heaven and sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He does have all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you believe that? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And he will judge. 1 Peter chapter 4 and, and verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That means, I don't know how you fit this with signs of Christ coming in any moment, return of Christ, another topic. Don't be surprised if Christ's judgment comes right now. Which is why right now, you and I need to flee from the wrath to come. Number three, the focus in the New Testament is what God in Christ delivers us from and demonstrates to those around us as part of his rescue mission to the world. And that's what I want you to think. We use the word salvation. What is it? Salvation is a rescue mission, folks. It's delivering people from the wrath to come. Yes, it's only by grace. Yes, it's only by God's sovereign grace. In terms of our responsibility, it's delivering people from the wrath to come. The focus in the New Testament is what God in Christ delivers us from and demonstrates to those around us as part of his rescue mission to the world. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Of the many texts we could pick. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, and this is I beg you, as sojourners, you are, you are uh, people who are from heaven, and uh, you are in this world, and you're heading for heaven, and you're exiles in that way, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's where they lived, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You can try to figure out what that means. It's either the day of God working and bringing conversions and revival, or the last day, or both. But there's going to be a day that God works, and people say, now I understand what I saw in those strange people that are, are called Christians. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, which cannot be overstated, 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Lord, why aren't you judging this? 
but he's patient toward you, especially toward his people, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why doesn't God just wipe people out now? Because his will is to save at least some of them. That's why. And so the word is he's long-suffering, which means long-suffering is with people. He is long-suffering to the end of the salvation of others. And if that bothers you, you think of your own life. I'll be very blunt using myself and his example, and you can put myself, yourself in my shoes. And my estate outside of grace... My attitude, my conduct, was such that God would have been absolutely just to have stopped my heart and my lungs and my brain in a second and stopped the odiousness of the life of this young man called Bill Shishko. But he was long-suffering. And you're in the same situation. Okay, so the focus in the New Testament is what God in Christ delivers us from and demonstrates to those around us as part of his rescue mission of the world. If you could think of it like this, I'm going to use a couple of analogies. You're, you folks and I, we're spiritual cancer patients. Mm-hmm. By nature, that cancer of sin and death was in us from our first parents. And God came and did the radioactive work and chemotherapy work and scalpel work of what it takes to make us new creatures in Christ. There's still cancer cells of sin within us, but we can say we're healed by God's grace. And what's your work? It's to go to other spiritual cancer patients and say, I want you to know about my doctor, (laughs) the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he does. So that's, that's our work as a rescue mission in the world. And then last, for this week anyway. And this should govern our attitudes. This mission is carried out not by condemnation, but by the free and full offer and demonstration of salvation. What do I mean by that? If you're a saved person, you're going to demonstrate the fact that you're an object of God's grace and long-suffering. And the world needs to see that. This is the work of the church in the world. And here, here let me use another, another illustration. You'll, those of you who are lifeguards or have trained them, you'll appreciate this. I'm going to certify each of you as spiritual lifeguards, Okay. Don't go to a pool. I said spiritual, not physical. (laughs) What does that mean? Folks, you've got people around you who are drowning. And whether it's sexual deviancy, whether it's abuse of drugs or alcohol or food, whether it's pride and anger, they're drowning. You don't look at drowning people and say, You jerk! What are you drowning for? You get the pole 
and you reach it out to them to grab it. That's what you do. You tell people about the Lord Jesus. Now, I realize, and this is going to come up, it'll come up even more next week. It come, this does not mean you're going to be appreciated. Lifeguards, I hope, are appreciated. You may be hated because you reach out the pole of the gospel to others. And that's a big dynamic in First and Second Peter. First Peter, well, we can, we'll look at the text next week because we're pretty much out of time. But you're going to suffer for doing what's right. That, that's the hard thing in this. It, it is, Lord, I do these things in the world and be gracious and kind but truthful. I speak the truth in love. And it's almost as if I'm hated even more. Let me tell you about a person named Jesus Christ who is the epitome of speaking the truth in love. He did it perfectly. And he was crucified. And unless things change in our culture, it won't be crucifixion, but it will be crosshairs. Already, Christians who hold the kind of standards the Word of God say we're to have, in many cases, are enemies of the state. And you say, we're going to seek to protect our children and our grandchildren. And you've got more than one group that says, we're going to come after them. So, so we're not saying, and we'll deal with this more next week, because it's one of the anomalies here. The more you seek to follow the Lord faithfully, quite frankly, the more the opposition comes. But that's, that's for another time. The mission is carried out not by condemnation, but by the free and full offer and demonstration of salvation. That's the way the church is to work in the world. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And never, never lose your wonder at this. If it were not for John 3.16 and John 3.17... You write condemned to death on your head from the time of your birth. But it's because of Christ. Those precious words, no condemnation, come in. Now, this work, demonstrating the free and full offer of salvation and speaking it, is not done by power. The Christian faith is not built the way Islam builds itself. You confess Allah or your head gets cut off. The gospel comes by persuasion. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm? See, see who is here to harm you? If you're zealous for what is good, it assumes that when you do good, there's going to be threats of harm. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, not for being a jackass, but because you're doing the right thing, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. They'll be troubled. You know what that means? Have no fear of them. and Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ 
as Lord. Do you do that? Yes, we want to see the world one to Christ. But the world is not our Lord. Christ is. You honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared, always being ready to make a defense. The word is apologia. We use the word apologia, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. If you have a reason for the hope that's in you, you reason with people. Folks, sexual perversion isn't just wrong. It's destructive. It mars. It kills. It dehumanizes. And you seek to persuade people that way. Yet doing it with gentleness, with humility, with courtesy, and respect. The word is fear, which does mean respect here. In other words, you have a fear of God when you're dealing with those made in his image. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it's done by persuasion. The servant of the Lord must not strive. How do I win the debate? Now, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be apt to teach. Patient. In meekness, instructing those who are opposing themselves. If God, peradventure, should give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's, that's the way the gospel works. Not by power, but by persuasion. Firmness in your faith does not equal flamethrowing at folly. First Peter chapter 2, and then... I have a challenge for you at the end. First Peter 2, verse 15, <clears throat> which we read before. First Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Yes, there are foolish people. Foolishness is not walking in the fear of God. And you're not discriminating in the wrong sense of the word when you say that. You're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. The fool has said in his heart, No God, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Everyone means your lesbian neighbor. Everyone means your drug addict friend. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Those who are believers in Christ. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Here's an ouch quotation. Most people that I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical empire builders. They want to convert everyone, and they generally cannot live peaceably with anyone else who doesn't believe what they believe. This doesn't mean you don't have these convictions about things, including the desire to convert people. 
But if you're known first as anti, anti, just out to convert me, I suggest you're not doing the cause any good. Love, honor those around you. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor or those in authority. Now, I am preaching to myself, and I thought to myself when I got done this, how does Pastor Shishko take these things and apply them? And it struck me, especially because I knew I'd be reading the law of God, that perhaps we ought to do a little more with the Beatitudes, which are the charter of the New Testament. And let me do with you what I've done with myself, and by God's grace will continue to do with myself. Matthew chapter 5. To put politics in perspective, channel the Ten Commandments through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are utterly broken because of their own sin what's around them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Rivers of water flow down from their eyes because people don't keep your law, and they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are self-controlled under pressure, even when it's the pressure of a very hostile society, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the judgment of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what is the right thing, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hate. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the angry in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are at war with their society around them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Does that mean that everything will be wonderful, bright? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And you live out of channeling the Ten Commandments through the Beatitudes, and you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is that? That's the character of Christ before a world that doesn't need our finger pointing, but it needs the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are thankful that we can
from the final authority of your word. Put politics in perspective. And our God, we need grace in order to do every syllable of what we've just heard. Grant us that grace that we represent the saving Jesus before a world that needs to be saved. Amen. Amen.